If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from the makers of BBC History magazine. From Maastricht to Brexit, the European Union's first three decades have entailed plenty of political and economic drama. In today's episode, Danny Bird speaks to Dermot Hodson about his new book, Circle of Stars, which focuses on some of the key individuals that helped shape the EU. From advocates of European integration to dyed-in-the-wool Eurosceptics, each have been at the heart of the past three decades of ambition, crisis and consolidation. Dermot, thank you very much for joining me today to discuss your new book, Circle of Stars. I'd like to start us off by asking you what compelled you to write this book. I guess there was an anniversary at the core of my decision to write this book. The European Union has recently turned 30. So it's 30 years since the Maastricht Treaty entered into force. And that established the European Union on the edifice of the older European communities. So the European communities date to the 1950s, but they were transformed into a union in 1993, on the 1st of November 1993. And this marked, I think, a really interesting turning point for European integration. European integration became very contentious thereafter, actually almost from the very moment that the Maastricht Treaty was signed. So I thought this was a great moment to look back. I was also a little bit frustrated with how the EU is covered in the media sometimes. The EU is often presented as a project that's run by faceless technocrats. And so the point of my book is to try and put people at the centre of this story. Three groups of people, heads of state or government, that's prime ministers and presidents, who take key decisions on the European Union's direction, the European officials who carry out those policies, but also the right-wing populists who push back against European integration and who are empowered crisis to crisis. Your book traces the history of the European Union through the people who made it. In your view, who have been its three most significant figures to date? So that's a challenging question because there are over 300 people in the book. It was a deliberate choice in writing the book to talk about the EU as a kind of ensemble cast, right? So rather than pick a narrow group of individuals, I wanted to show that there was a real transnational quality to the people who shape the European Union. But if I were to pick three individuals who undoubtedly shaped the European Union, I'd start with Angela Merkel. She was one of the longest serving heads of state or government in the European Union since Maastricht. So she was present for many important and momentous periods for the European Union. And she proved to be a very successful and effective crisis manager. So she became Chancellor of Germany when the EU was trying to manage the fallout from the rejection of the European Constitution. She helped to forge a consensus over how to move forward, and that gave rise to the Lisbon Treaty. And when the Euro crisis hit, it was Merkel's support for maintaining the Eurozone, for making sure that Greece didn't drop out, that was absolutely critical in making sure that the single currency survived. And she was often criticized as a leader who was slow moving, overly deliberative. But actually, I think history will show something else, that she was very determined to keep the EU together. And she acted in the the most pragmatic way to help achieve this. And we see a similar approach during the global refugee crisis in 2015, when over a million people came to Germany from Syria and elsewhere claiming asylum. And at this point, 
she found a pragmatic way forward. Her motto was, yes, we can find a way. And that set the tempo and terms of how the EU ultimately and perfectly managed that crisis. But in the hands of a different leader, we could have seen a really discordant response and something far more problematic. In terms of European officials, I start the book by talking about Jacques Delors, who was a very influential president of the European Commission, the administrative body that's at the core of the European Union. And Delors is remembered as someone who helped to drive integration forward uh, through projects such as the single European market and the single currency. But actually, he was pretty skeptical about Maastricht. He felt that it was full of political compromises, and he worried about the future direction of European integration in the 1990s. He looked at the EU's stuttering response to the wars in Yugoslavia, for example, and really worried about a resurgence of nationalism. So one thing I try and do in the book is to push back against the idea of Delors as a heroic federalist figure. Actually, he was quite ambivalent about European integration and the direction it was going to take after Maastricht. And at least some of his warnings proved to be prescient. If I were to pick a right-wing populist from the kind of third category of actor in the book, I would pick someone like Sir James Goldsmith. And Sir James Goldsmith was an Anglo-French businessman who lent his support to a variety of political causes, but he was a, essentially a pragmatic pro-European. He was a donor for the Conservative Party, and he had supported Britain's referendum in 1975 on staying in the European communities. And in the early 1990s, he suddenly changed his views. And he wrote a book that was deeply critical of the Maastricht Treaty and the direction that European integration was taking. And he accused European officials of building a borderless Europe. So this sudden change is mysterious, but hugely impactful. So if we look at Goldsmith, not only was elected to the European Parliament as a member of the European Parliament, he started a political party in the UK called the Referendum Party. And that won no seats in the 1997 general election, but it pushed all major parties into making referendum commitments of their own, be it on membership or on the single currency. And on election night, Goldsmith said that his intention was not to win seats, it was to win the political debate. And in that respect, he did win because he set Britain on a path to Brexit. And he became a kind of template or an influencer for a whole generation of right-wing populists who copied his warnings about the European Union to powerful effect. When and how was the European Union formed? What preceded it and what institutions did it develop from? The EU was built on three European communities. And the first of these European communities was the European Coal and Steel Community. And that was established in a treaty that was signed in 1951. So this was a very narrow area of cooperation establishing a common market for coal and steel. Now, the focus on those sectors is very deliberate because the idea was that it was going to take the ingredients of warfare and put them under common governance. It would be next to impossible for France and Germany to go to war with each other if they were governing their coal and steel sectors collectively. And so this community had, I would say, mixed success. It didn't necessarily achieve its uh, stated aims of having a more competitive coal and steel industry or finding a way to revitalize these industries. But it showed that European countries could work together. And they quickly built on this to two other European communities, the European Atomic Energy Community, which tried to have cooperation in the area of nuclear power, and the better known European Economic Community. And that had at its core 
the idea of a common market, so free trade between the participating member states, but also common policies in areas like agriculture or transport. So these European communities were up and running by the late 1950s. They were very dynamic in their early years, and they reached some difficulties from the mid-1960s onwards. The empty chair crisis saw French President Charles de Gaulle remove French representatives from the decision-making structures of the European communities for a number of months in an argument about the authority of the European Commission, that is the civil service at the core of this project. Although that was overcome, what followed was a period of stagnation up to a point for the European communities. And one thing I talk about in the book was the attempt to put forward the idea of European Union, not just in the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 and 1993, but also in a project for European Union in the mid-1970s. This was the first period in which we saw this attempt to relaunch integration, to turn the European communities into a more ambitious political project with, for example, a single currency or cooperation in really sensitive areas like foreign policy. But those ideas fell flat. They were discussed in the 1970s, but there wasn't sufficient political support. The European economy at the time was rocked by economic crises as a result of the oil shocks. But those ideas continued to percolate, and we see the European community taking some elements of those plans for European Union in Maastricht and finally realising them in 1993. And the Maastricht Treaty has come up quite a lot already in our discussion. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But what exactly was the Maastricht Treaty and how did it reshape Europe? So the Maastricht Treaty was an attempt to build on the relaunch of European integration in the 1980s. And this relaunch centred on a very specific project, which was to complete the single market. So this had been established in the Treaty of Rome in 1957, but never fully realised. There was lots of invisible barriers to trade, whether it's professional qualifications not being recognised or product standards. So there was a big and very successful push in the 1980s to try and complete the single market by the last day of 1992. And it was so successful that member states sought to build on this project with an even more ambitious plan for European Union through Maastricht. And Maastricht had three big signature projects at the centre of it. So one was a plan to have a single currency, also known as Economic and Monetary Union, this was trying to overcome the exchange rate crises that had robbed European integration periodically, really since the 1970s, and to have a single monetary policy. And this would reinforce the single market by allowing countries to trade with each other in the same money. It also had a plan for a common approach to what's called justice and home affairs policy. So this was going to be a plan to have a common approach to migration, for example, at the borders of the European Union. So these were very, very sensitive topics that had, hadn't really been dealt with very much in the European communities, and now they were brought into the European Union as a key project. 
And the third project was the Common Foreign and Security Policy. This was an ambition for member states to speak together collectively on international issues. Now, it wasn't going to replace national foreign policies. This was never the ambition of the European Union, but it was trying to have greater coherence for the European Union on the international stage. So in Maastricht, this was still very much about diplomatic cooperation, having common statements in the United Nations or on international issues of the day. That was gradually upgraded over time so that we, we have a high representative for foreign policy in the European Union who acts as a spokesperson for the EU. We now see the EU participating in small-scale military missions, peacekeeping operations in different parts of the world. So Maastricht took this you know, very successful existing European community and added on these three really, really ambitious projects and called that the European Union. What are the origins of Euroscepticism? Well, Euroscepticism is as old as the European communities, right? From the moment that that community was created, you saw principled opposition to it, you know, from both the left and the right of the political spectrum. But I argue in the book that a different sort of Euroscepticism emerges in the early 1990s in response to Maastricht. Now, this was a, a new form of Euroscepticism that describes the European Union as a vehicle for this new phenomenon called globalization, right? We didn't really talk about globalization very much before the early 1990s. And the fact that the Maastricht Treaty coincided with this sense that we were building a kind of borderless global economy, I think fused together and created a new sort of Eurosceptic discourse where people like Goldsmith described the European Union as a vehicle for globalization that was going to destroy national identity and leave the EU vulnerable to global competition, to movements of migrants, and unable to protect its own borders. So that sort of discourse is new in the 1990s, and it takes off very rapidly. And I think it takes off very rapidly, in part because the EU is so visible and ambitious, it had these big projects at the center of it. But there was also a story there about process, because referendums on European issues had taken place before 1992, occasionally, but now they started to take place really frequently. We saw referendums in France and Denmark on the Maastricht Treaty itself, and they were a kind of lightning rod for Eurosceptics to challenge the idea of the European Union, but also to challenge political elites. At the time, right-wing populists perhaps struggled to gain a seat in general elections, but they found referendums were ready-made for their kind of protest politics. So we see this in Denmark, and we see it in France, where new Eurosceptic movements are empowered by being given this powerful political stage in the form of a referendum campaign. The European Union is acutely aware of this kind of loss of what's sometimes called the permissive consensus over European integration. The EU becomes heavily contested, and European policymakers understand this. They decide to respond to this not by addressing the substantive concerns of Eurosceptics or those voters who might be drawn to them, but through a series of treaty revisions. So having signed the Maastricht Treaty and seen it entered into force, the EU launches almost immediately into another treaty change and another one after this. Now, the purpose of those treaty changes was to kind of get the EU ready for an enlargement, to have more member states coming in, especially from Central Eastern Europe. But those treaties were also a way, it was argued at the time, of bringing Europe closer to the people. But the problem is they just gave new opportunities for Eurosceptics through further referendums. 
So you see referendums in Ireland, which defeat the Nice Treaty in 2001 and the Lisbon Treaty several years afterwards. It provides this powerful platform to these Eurosceptics. The EU probably should have realised quite early on that treaties were a way to amplify opposition concerning the project, but they doubled down and kept going with these treaties. And the most ambitious one was the European Constitution, an attempt to refound the EU legally and to try and establish certainty about where the EU could and couldn't act. Again, this provided opportunities for dissent. And we saw a referendums in the Netherlands and France which rejected the European Constitution. So it, it took the EU a long time to realise that this was not the way to connect with people. It was quite the opposite. Thereafter, there was a focus on um, you know, trying to get policies that would address people's concerns rather than doing these grand treaty revisions, which had the potential to backfire. But by this point, Eurosceptics had gone from being, in a sense, agitators on the margins of politics to being in power. And we see this, for example, in Viktor Orban's Hungary. And Orban had started out as a student revolutionary, a poster child for European liberalism, and over time, having won the premiership, lost it and regained it in Hungary, he transformed himself into a champion, as he called it, a liberal democracy. Now, this is a really important moment for the European Union because you it's used to challenge your parties by this point, you know, new parties that come in and challenge those who are in power. But now for the first time, it has challenged your governments. And Viktor Orban doesn't want to leave the European Union, but he wants to show that it's possible to build an illiberal state within that European Union. And he succeeds up to a point by pushing back against the European Union at every opportunity, by revising Hungary's constitution, undermining the rule of law, undermining academic freedoms, undermining media freedoms too. And so this is a big crisis for the European Union, where it has Eurosceptics not only challenging the very idea of it, but in power and trying to undermine the values on which the EU is built. You describe the collapse of communism between 1989 and 1991 as almost being synonymous with an act of European integration, and that for many it signalled a return to Europe. What is meant by that term, and how did the nascent European Union respond to the collapse of communism? Well, it's portrayed as a return to Europe that ultimately helped EU enlargement in 2004, where 10 countries, eight of them from Central and Eastern Europe, became fully-fledged members of the European Union. And I challenge that narrative to some extent in the book by pointing out that leaders like Havel in 1989 and immediately thereafter had in mind actually a very different type of European integration. They looked at different pan-European organizations like the Council of Europe and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, as it became known, as a very broad European church that could bring countries of the West and East together. And Havel, of course, had been inspired by a revolutionary movement in Czechoslovakia that took inspiration from the Helsinki Accords in the 1970s, Again, a type of pan-Europeanism that uh, created the so-called Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, and which had at its heart a recognition of national borders, but also a recognition of fundamental rights. So there was a kind of duality in that agreement. So Havel and his contemporaries returned to those agreements in the 1970s and sought to build on them. And when they were making these arguments, of course, the Soviet Union was still in existence. 
And so they understood this to be a way of navigating the Soviet Union's uncertain place in Europe. That ambition of having these broad pan-European organizations that were much larger than the European Union was essentially overtaken by events, by the collapse of the Soviet Union, by the very, very painful economic transition that we see in Central and Eastern Europe. It took many years, multiple reforms, incredibly high unemployment to, to make that transition from central planning to market capitalism. By the time we get to the mid-1990s, there's little choice for many of these countries but to think about applying to the European Union. That's where the best opportunity for trade is. That's where the real economic potential lies for those countries. So Havel's initial vision is kind of overtaken by a pragmatism. There's a pivot towards the European Union rather than these wider pan-European organizations, and that sets those countries on the road to EU membership. There's a very similar story about NATO membership, of course, to be told in this period too. We see a decade of intense negotiations before the EU is able to enlarge. We see these treaty revisions designed to prepare the European Union for this much bigger membership. But we also see an attempt by the EU to use the promise of membership as a kind of reform lever, which was to say to these countries, keep going with your reforms. And once you do, we will allow you to become members. And actually, that's probably the EU at its most powerful and successful. It's acting as an agent and lever of reform in Central and Eastern Europe and encouraging countries like Poland to complete their economic transition. The challenge for the European Union is that it never really found an alternative to enlargement. The promise of taking countries in was the only real catalyst for reform it could find. And when it tried to design alternatives, like the so-called European Neighbourhood Policy, which said, OK, we'll offer you cooperation and funding, but not membership, that didn't really work. And it left countries like Ukraine in a liminal state. They weren't really sure where they stood in relation to the European Union. We didn't see such a powerful catalyst for reform. And of course, that provided one of several contexts for the very difficult situations in which Ukraine has found itself in over the last decade, culminating with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And of course, with Ukraine's application to join the EU, and we're about to see those negotiations begin with the European Union in the coming months. How did the European Union deal with the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s? So this was the first big test of the common foreign and security policy that was created at Maastricht, and the EU failed that test. This was happening as the EU was being formed. And I start the book by talking about Jacques Delors and a very downbeat speech he gave in the European Parliament in 1993. And this should have been the occasion, right, for Delors to be quite confident in talking about this new European project. And instead, he was very pessimistic about the state of Europe. And I think a key reason for this was what he was seeing in the former Yugoslavia. He really worried that the EU was failing to step up and help and to do what it could in response to this uh, mass violence on the continent of Europe. And he understood that the EU would be held accountable to this. I mean, at the same time, there were other actors involved in this. We could look at the United Nations. We could look at the United States. And I think there was no scenario in which the EU alone would be expected to manage conflict on this scale. That much hasn't changed. If you look at Ukraine, the prospect that the United States may scale down its support for Ukraine is really troubling for the European Union because the EU wouldn't be able to fill that gap. The United States remains 
an indispensable security actor in Europe, whatever the EU's ambitions might be in this domain. What was the euro crisis and what impact did it have on the European Union's cohesion in the 2010s? So the euro crisis was linked to another crisis, which was the global financial crisis. And the global financial crisis was set in motion in 2007 when we saw an acute downturn in the US housing market that spilled over into US banks and then spilled over internationally into the banking system. This hit Europe in August 2007 when its banking system came to the brink of collapse very, very quickly. And governments across Europe stepped in to protect their banking sectors. So we saw the nationalization of Northern Rock in the UK, but we see similar acts in other EU countries. Governments stand by the banking sector, pump public money into it and protect it. And in a sense, that's how the global financial crisis is de-escalated. But there's a terrible after effect for the Eurozone, which is that a number of the countries that stepped in to protect their banking system and other countries that didn't have banking problems in particular found themselves sucked into a systemic fiscal crisis. So this became apparent when Greece in late 2009 announced that it had found inaccuracies in the reporting of its public financial statements. And this may sound like quite a dry technical active economic policy, but what the Greek government was admitting was that its predecessor had disguised the true scale of government borrowing and that its budget deficit wouldn't be in or around 3% of gross domestic product, as is allowed under the Maastricht Treaty, it would be around 13%. So there was a significant and sudden revision that caused pandemonium on financial markets, which looked at Greece, which already had high debt, and worried that Greece was going to default on its debt. And then immediately began to ask, if Greece defaults on its debt, what happens in the rest of the Eurozone, that is the countries that share the single currency, who might be next? And there's a kind of self-fulfilling panic in European financial markets. Now, the EU had weathered the global financial crisis relatively effectively. It had found a way through it. And it had even provided financial assistance to countries like Hungary, which found themselves buffeted by the global financial crisis. But its treaties didn't allow it to provide the same support to countries that were in the euro. This was a big shortcoming. The fear was that if financial assistance was readily available for countries like Greece, they might take a lot of risks with their economic policy and that they could create a problem of what economists call moral hazard. And so the EU entered this crisis without a set of instruments for managing what was happening before it which was this profound financial crisis taking hold in Greece and elsewhere. But the theme of the book is that the EU eventually confronts crises and finds a way forward. It doesn't necessarily do it quickly enough. And it doesn't always take the right decisions, but it often starts out very divided and then finds a way forward. And this is what it did in the case of Greece. So in May 2010, the European Union came together with the International Monetary Fund and offered a very large set of loans to Greece to try and help it get back on its feet as an economy. And it created a similar set of instruments for the rest of the Eurozone. It offered loans to Ireland, Portugal, Spain, and other countries to help them manage this fiscal crisis. So in a sense, this is an act of solidarity. Member states come together and belatedly put billions of euro on the table to try and help countries 
manage that crisis. It's not seen as an act of solidarity in countries like Greece, and I think justifiably so, because those loans come with incredibly harsh conditions attached. Greece is expected to have deep cuts to its expenditure, to increase tax, to have painful economic reforms. And people in Greece are quite rightly asking whether this is worth it, right? Would it not be easier to find an alternative way of managing that crisis, such as leaving the euro and devaluing its currency? So this created a profound existential crisis for the single currency with knock-on effects for the EU. There was a real worry that Greece was going to drop out of the euro. The EU ultimately found a way to manage this crisis. It provided further loans to Greece, uh, three rounds of loans, in fact, and eventually Greece was able to return to financial markets to cover its own debts and to start functioning as an economy again. But this had taken a heavy, heavy toll on the European Union's legitimacy in the intervening period. How did the remaining member states of the European Union respond to Brexit and how has it impacted the cohesion of the bloc? The member states responded to Brexit by trying to prevent it from happening. By which I mean, when David Cameron called a referendum on whether the UK should remain in the European Union, he sought a new settlement with the European Union to try and change the terms of membership. So member states engaged with David Cameron's modest requests, and I argue that they were modest in the book, and largely gave him what he sought. Assurances on the single currency, what the countries who have the single currency might do in terms of the single market or other projects, reassurances on free movement. Cameron didn't ask for much, and member states largely gave it to him to try and incentivize people to vote for Remain. And I think the expectation in Brussels was probably that that would be enough, or certainly was the hope, and that then the UK could find a way forward as a member state. When that didn't happen, this was a profound crisis for the European Union. It had never before lost a member state, and it was thrown into these quite untested and unfamiliar negotiations, but one of its own about the terms of removing itself from the European Union. So there could have been a moment for EU member states to really struggle to come up with a coherent view. There was certainly a worry in Ireland, where I'm from, that perhaps large member states like France and Germany would dictate the terms of those negotiations to the detriment of countries like Ireland. But instead, something very different happened. Member states came together, established very clear priorities, and managed to pick a very skilled negotiator to take forward those negotiations, which is Michel Barnier, who had been French foreign minister and a European commissioner. And he proved to be a very effective negotiator. He played those ne negotiations at a pretty straight bat, making clear what the European Union wanted, what its priorities were, which were to protect its single market, to not offer the UK a way of taking some aspects of free trade, but not free movement of people, for example. The EU was determined to protect its single market. And it was also determined to protect the principle of having no hard border on the island of Ireland between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And they were two of the EU's key negotiating points, along with making sure that it got the terms of negotiation financially settled to its favour. In other words, the UK had to pay its bills in the European Union before it left. So that, that was quite a straightforward act of negotiation for the European Union that Barnier kept member states focused on and 
showed skills as a negotiator and helped to maintain EU unity. He visited member states very, very frequently to make sure that they were in agreement with his approach to negotiations, that any differences between countries were ironed out. He was, for example, a very familiar figure in Ireland at the time. And I thought one sign of his skills as a negotiator was during an Ireland-French rugby game when the camera cut to the crowd and saw Barnier there with the Irish Prime Minister. It was a nice act of diplomacy to go and visit Ireland to participate in this, watching the sporting event, but also to be in constant dialogue with EU member states to make sure that the EU had this quite coherent approach. This was in stark contrast to what happened in the UK. This was a very fraught referendum campaign. And afterwards, there was very little national consensus on what form breaks it should take. So there was incredible contrasts here between the EU's straightforward negotiating position and the discipline and unity it showed. Something that's not always true about managers' crises, but this one I think it managed particularly effectively. And the UK, which engaged in intense internal discussions and recriminations over what form Brexit would take. So the EU may have hoped for a different result in that referendum. I think it almost certainly did. But having seen that outcome, it then showed a unity and discipline and I think largely got what it wanted in those negotiations. That was Dermot Hodson, whose book, Circle of Stars, A History of the EU and the People Who Made It, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.